first reading tonight is from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. David is made king of Judah. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Manahim, and he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. The second reading is 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Seven and a half years later, David is made king of all Israel. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd, be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. Amen. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for what it will teach us about the king, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for what it will teach us about his kingdom. Help us to listen. Help us to apply it to our lives corporately and individually. And help us to understand a little bit more of what it means to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, why study 2 Samuel? 2 Samuel is about the kingdom of David a thousand years before the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. What relevance does it have? It enriches our understanding of Jesus, the King, and it enriches our understanding of Jesus' kingdom. 
Think of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as four colors painting a portrait of Jesus and his kingdom, each one a distinctive color on the portrait. Well, the book of 2 Samuel is another distinctive color on the portrait of Jesus and his kingdom. Without it, we would have a less full understanding of what Jesus the King is like and of what his kingdom is like. Now, the two passages that Carolyn read that are printed on the service sheet, the beginning of 2 Samuel 2 and the beginning of 2 Samuel 5. Passage 1 is when David was crowned as king of Judah. That's just the southern bit of the land, just a small bit. And passage 2, 5, 1 to 5, is when David is made king of all Israel after seven and a half years. Now, it would be really tempting, and I was tempted this week in preparation, to simply concentrate on these two passages and miss out the big bit in the middle. And the big bit in the middle, if I were to describe it, is complicated, intricate, there are machinations, there are different characters, who are the goodies, who are the baddies, it's really hard to work it all out. It's a mess, really. But the stuff in the middle between the two bookends, between David's becoming king at Hebron over Judah and David becoming uh, king uh, over all of Israel, the stuff in between teaches us really helpful stuff about what it's like in God's kingdom as it advances, how it is that God's kingdom comes, all the ups and downs, the machinations, and so on and so forth. Now, this is a Sunday when I really miss the fact that you don't have Bibles in your hands that you can flick and follow with me. If you do, that's great. If you don't, please listen. Please kind of work at understanding the kind of flow of the narrative. And if you've got time this week, sit down again, and I'll put the text of this up. It's a lot more detail than I can share tonight. And just get your head around the, the stuff between these two bookends. And it's very, very helpful and very, very relevant and timely. And it describes how it is in the world and in the church. All sorts of stuff going on. And yet through it all quietly, the Lord Jesus is building his kingdom. Now, that's enough waggling on the tea. Let's uh, begin. Let me just uh, recap quickly the story so far. Saul was Israel's first king. His story is 1 Samuel. While he was anointed by God as king, he was not God's choice. He was the people's choice. He looked the part, but he wasn't God's choice. And his kingship uh, failed in the end. David was God's chosen king, chosen in 1 Samuel 16. But a long, long time before David would come to the throne. Saul died at the end of 1 Samuel. It's recorded in chapter 31, which opened the door up for David, God's choice, to become king. Now, David's first act, we didn't look at this last Sunday, we didn't have time, at the beginning of 2 Samuel 1, is to judge somebody who was deceitful, and to judge someone who had, in their own claim, uh, helped Saul die. It was a lie, in fact, but and the point is that our first encounter with God's king 
in 2 Samuel is judgment. Then, as we looked at in detail last week, the second half of 2 Samuel 1, lament. David, the king's lament over Saul. He saw the good in Saul. He lamented the loss of God's honor and glory. He lamented the loss of his uh, friend, Jonathan. He lamented over death. I was struck as David was praying, as we pray every Sunday in our prayers for others, the right response to the world in which we live is hope in the gospel, but lament. As we look at India and Brazil, our hearts are moved and so they should be. As Christians, we shouldn't be the ones who turn off the television. We should watch and lament and pray your kingdom come. Now, the beginning of 2 Samuel, and we're picking up the first of the two readings Carolyn read, describes how David becomes king in Judah, in the southern part of the kingdom. And what we are told at the beginning of the narrative is how David approaches his becoming king. Now, the narrator emphasizes David's asking of the Lord what he should do, and then his obedience. Now, that is intended as a contrast to Saul, who often acted rashly and did not obey God's word. Just uh, let me read again to Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah to be crowned? And the Lord said to him, yes, go up. David said, and he wants specific instruction from the Lord, to which city shall I go up? And I guess David might have thought God would have said Bethlehem, where he was born. But he doesn't. He says, to Hebron. And David obeys God and goes to Hebron. And the point is that God's king, David, who points us forward to Jesus, is a king who obeys God's word and does the will of God, and therefore is a leader to be trusted. If you know that your leader, your king, always obeys God and his word, he is to be trusted. If he is fickle in his obedience, he is not to be trusted. David does what God says. Now, the choice of Hebron is significant. Hebron is the city of Abraham. And the point is that God is connecting here David's kingship and David's rule and his part in salvation history right back into the promise God made to Abraham. The fact that David is crowned in Hebron, it's the city of Abraham. It reminds us that God had promised to build a nation for himself. And David is part of that fulfillment that goes forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who brings God's everlasting kingdom. Now, at this stage, though, David is only king in Judah. His kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. It's just the southern part of Israel, chapter 2, verse 4, and he is crowned. 
It's all very humble. His kingdom begins in a small and understated way. His kingdom has come, but at this stage only in part. Now, with the crown on his head, what is David's first act as king of Judah? Well, he hears that the people of Jabesh-Gilead had buried Saul. Now, that might not seem significant if we just plunge into the narrative into Samuel for the first time. But at the beginning of Saul's reign, Saul had dramatically saved the town of Jabesh-Gilead from an attack of the Ammonites. And they had never forgotten, and if it was us, we would never have forgotten what Saul had done for them. And the people of Jabesh were God's people. They were God's people, and David was to be king over all God's people. But the people of Jabesh-Gilead were still loyal to Saul, loyal to someone who had considered himself to be David's enemy. Now, how would the new King David respond to news of what they had done? How would he treat them? Now, what he does is he sends them a message. He commends them for what they have done. He prays that God would bless them. He says he will be the blessing to them himself. And then he says them to have courage. Now, we just read that, but as a reader, we're meant to stop and say, goodness me, this king is gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. This is how he treats those who were loyal to someone who is implacably opposed to him. And we're meant to stop and think, gosh, would I have done that? Now, we don't know how the people of Jabesh responded or reacted. I think that's wonderfully real, the way the Bible tells us about God's kingdom. We just don't know how they reacted. What the narrator's attention does now in chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, we're still in the reading that Carolyn read, is he fast-forwards five and a half years. You can read that in between the lines of the text. During the five-and-a-half-year period, one can presume that David had remained king of Judah, but only Judah, and that the uh, uh, opposition to his kingship had been building in the northern part of Israel. We're five-and-a-half years on from when he was crowned as king at Hebron, and there's just a little reminder that we take these big steps in the narrative and... uh, there's something for us to learn there. Imagine if we were to say that, you know, something significant was going to happen in the life of the church in five and a half years. Sometimes I wonder how many of us would be patient enough to wait. Five and a half years on, something significant happens. Abner, here's a new character that's introduced, who had been Saul's military commander, makes Ishbosheth who is the only surviving son of Saul, king over the north, with a claim of all Israel. Now, the rival king, Ishbosheth, was made king at Manahim. Now, there will be a prize for anyone who knows the significance of Manahim in the Bible and why it's what it means as a name. Um, I was certain that after the first service, no one would know 
maybe this time you will. If somebody might know that uh, Genesis 32, when Jacob was returning to meet up with Esau, his estranged brother, he met an angel at this place uh, called Manahim, and he divided his people into two camps, hence the name Manahim, which means two camps or two kingdoms or a divided people. And the point is that uh, Abner is setting up Ishbosheth as a rival king to David, and in so doing, is dividing the people of God into two camps, asking them a tough question where will you give your allegiance? And for the next two years, that was the choice God's people faced which king would they follow? And it would not look obvious. So there was David down in Judah, God's chosen king. But there was Saul's son Ishbosheth with Abner, with all his military prowess, up there in the central belt, if you like. The only way you would make the right choice is by knowing that David was God's chosen king. And therefore, irrespective of what it looked like or felt like, he was the king to follow. And that's true of us. Whatever time we live in history, whatever it feels like or looks like where the two power bases lie in our culture and society, following Jesus as God's king is always right because he is God's king. Now, which of the two will prevail? Ishbosheth, the king put up by Abner, or David, God's chosen king? Whose word will prevail? The king's word or some other word, some other message? Now, the answer, of course, is David, God's king, and David's word or Jesus' word. But in between the crowning of David in Judah and the crowning of David over all Israel, or in between the Lord Jesus coming and his coming again when his kingdom comes in its fullness, in between there is the stuff of chapters 2 to 5. Now, if we'd made Carolyn read all the way through these chapters, what we would have read about was this. And remember, this is among the people of God. Not the world, the people of God. We'd have read of politics, ambition, opportunism, rivalries, violence, vengeance. We would not be clear at the end of these chapters who was on the good side, who was on the bad side. We would not be able to discern people's motives, true or ill. Yet through these dark days, and it's not that different often, in Scotland at the moment, for the first time in a long time, in terms of the church, things are better, I think. There's lots of good stuff going on. But there were really difficult days when it was very hard to see what was happening. But all the time, all the time, the righteousness, the goodness of God's chosen king, building his kingdom is there. Now, to understand what's happening, and I'm going to just bring you into the world of the confusion of these middle chapters. Don't despair. 
but that's how it is, and it's the world of reality. Let me just give you the two sides. There's David, yeah, God's chosen king, and there's Ishbosheth, Saul's son, surviving son, the other king. And alongside David, there is his military commander, a man called Joab, and his brothers, Abishai and Azahel. They were nephews of David, and if you wanted to pick out three people who were dog loyal to David, genuinely with integrity, who loved him as their king, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel were your men. And then on the other side, there's Ishbosheth, Saul's only surviving son, set up by Abner as the rival king. Abner, a commander of Saul's army, and the real power behind the opposition to David. Now, at the beginning of this two year conflict, that led in the end to David being crowned as king, his kingdom come over all Israel. The two leaders, yet yeah, the two military leaders, uh, Abner and uh, Joab, so Abner on Ishbosheth's side and Joab on David's side, they decided they would get together and sort it out. And that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, the, the people who oppose the king and the people who promote the interests of the king, they get together, and who is absent? The king. David's not there. And they try to sort out this mess. And what they do is that they, if you read the account, they, they set up a kind of mock joust. Let's see who's the strongest. Don't use any sharp swords, but of course they do, and somebody gets stabbed. And if somebody on one side gets stabbed, somebody on the other side stabs them back. And by the end of the day, if you looked out on that field, there's blood all over the field. And when that happens on day one, Human beings as they are, hatred, vengeance, is settled in your heart. A day of violent bloodshed that led to two years of bitter feud and bitter struggle. Chapter 3, verse 1 is an important summary verse. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of David became weaker and weaker. Now, that's a really important point. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. David did not go stronger and stronger because of what Joab did to further David's interests. David grew stronger and stronger in spite of that. In spite of that. And there is another little detail in chapter 3 that the narrator includes and then moves on to look further at the conflict. At the beginning of chapter 3, we are told that sons were born to David in Hebron. And they're listed in chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. And the point is that while all this stuff is going on, all this conflict, all these politics amongst God's people, quietly in the background, David's sons are born. And the line continues. The promise to Abraham continues. And that's true in the church. In times of complexity and difficulty, people keep becoming Christians. And the kingdom of God advances. The kingdom of God advances. Now, following that comment from the narrator, the remainder of chapter 3 and chapter 4 focus on some of the key moments in the war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now, there are, are two uh, key incidents. Let me just describe them in summary to you, and you can read them up uh, yourself. 
Firstly, chapter 3, there's a kind of fallout or a breakdown in the relationship between Ishbosheth and Abner. So the rival king and the person that set him up against David, they fall out. And Abner shifts sides. He no longer pledges his loyalty to Ishbosheth, Saul's son. He now pledges his loyalty to David. And it's a genuine shift of sides. He recognizes perhaps in his heart that David is the true king. If it weren't genuine, God's king would not have welcomed him. Remember at the beginning of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, somebody pretended to be genuine and God's king saw straight through them. Abner's defection to David, the true king, is genuine. But here's another surprise. When he comes to David, we read that David welcomed him, made a covenant with him, chapter 3, verse 13. And remember that no one more than Abner had been responsible for the opposition to David's kingship of all Israel. And Abner left David at that meeting, chapter 3, verse 21, in peace. Reconciled. And we're meant to stop in our tracks again and say, gosh, this king is gracious. Look how this king treats his enemies. Look how forgiving this king is. There has to be genuine repentance. But this man, Abner, had opposed David. And yet he's repented. And David, as our David prayed, opens his arms and welcomes him and sends him on his way in peace. Would we have done that? Would we be as gracious as the king? Well, somebody wasn't. Abner's departure from Hebron in peace was troubling to one man, David's right-hand man, Joab. This man, Joab, so loyal to David as his king, could not cope with the forgiveness that David had given Abner. Vengeance was in his heart. Now, you might say he had good reason because Abner had killed his brother, even though Abner had tried to prevent that way, way earlier. But Joab held on to that in his heart from all these years before. He went to David and he said, David, I know you're my king, but you're wrong. You've got this wrong. You should not forgive this man. And he went behind David's back, or so he thought he could do. And with his brother, he hunted down Abner and killed him while he slept. Now, when David, the king, heard what had happened, he mourned for Abner. And he called out Joab and his brother as responsible for his death. Why did he not judge them? There's a question. Why did he not bring justice to Joab and his brother? He was quite clear that they were responsible. He called them to repent. I think what we can infer at this stage in the narrative is even when we go against the will of the king 
as directly as that. Even when we go behind his back, if we recognize and repent, he will forgive us. In chapter 4, describes the murder of Ishbosheth. Having been deserted by Abner, Ishbosheth's position is weak. And if you read chapter 4, what Ishbosheth does is he turns to two henchmen in his army. Two raider, raiders, they're called. They're, they're kind of freelance soldiers. Will they take up the cause after Abner and help him and rescue him? Well, what they do is they kind of calculate the best option now is with David. So they kill Abner. They kill Ishbosheth. They murder him. They cut off his head. They take it to David. A bit like that man at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And they said, look, David, we've done this for you. We're, we're with you. We're with you, David. We're loyal to you. And they weren't. And he sees right through them. And the David, the king who was gracious to Abner, gracious to Joab, judgment is swift and he kills them. The king sees right through people. Now, what a mess. If you've kept up and understood and can work out and can explain to your neighbor afterwards what happened in these seven years, well, you're better than it's complicated and a mess. Those who oppose God's king get undone. Those who take the advance of God's king into their own hands get undone. Quietly in the background, God's king is building his kingdom. And so ends these two years, a bit of struggle and war among the people of God. David had been king in Hebron over Judah for seven and a half years. Ishbosheth had ruled in Mahanim over the northern territories of Israel for two years, exactly the same length as Saul. Ishbosheth was dead. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Let's read it. Um, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. Maybe they're remembering David and Goliath, how David had gone out and fought the enemies of God. The Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them, and they anointed David king over all Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned for 40 years at Hebron for seven and a half over Judah and at Jerusalem uh, over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. Now, some important points to note. And behold, we are your bone and your flesh. What a strange phrase. We, David, are your body. That's a, a kind of expression that only truly makes sense for the people who are in Jesus' kingdom, the body of Christ, the body of the King, one in Christ, fellowship with Jesus through his Spirit. We are your body and you are our Savior. That's what verse 2 means. You went out and led us and delivered us from our enemies, and you shall be our shepherd. We are your body, the body of the King, 
line that goes forward the body of Christ. You are our Savior. You went out and delivered us. Line that goes forward, Jesus Christ, you delivered us from sin and wrath. You are our shepherd. Fast forward to Jesus. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, as we learn about the king, and that's so important in these chapters, all the stuff in the middle, all these machinations about how God's kingdom comes, describe how it is in the church and will describe how it is in the church until his kingdom comes in its fullness. Now, what can we learn by way of application as we finish? Let me try and draw out some of the key lessons. And these key lessons would be meaningless had we not at least tried to get our heads around the muddle in the middle. Number one, let me commend to us all from God's Word to appreciate once again what God's King Jesus is like. This is the brush stroke that one Samuel gives to the canvas. What we see in David foreshadows what we see in Jesus. He is God's choice. Stick with him. Whether it looks like you should or not, whether there is an Ishbosheth over there, a lure on your heart, stick with God's King because He is God's King. He is the King you need, not the one you always want, not the one who will always do things in the way that you would do things. Sometimes He will appear to you to be too gracious. Sometimes he will appear to you to be far too slow. Sometimes he will appear to you to be too decisive in his judgment. If you are confused by his actions or what he allows to happen, he, not you, is able to see people for who they truly are, their hearts, their motives, That frightens me, but it comforts me, for I cannot hide anything from him. He is always righteous in his actions. He is always righteous in his manner. He is just. His judgment is severe, but he is merciful. He forgives if people turn to him in genuine repentance. If, as believers, we turn away from him but turn back, he will welcome us with his open arms. He is kind. He looks for the good in what believers do, not for their faults. Were we the same? He brings peace where there is division. He laments over loss. He delights in fellowship with us. He is our Savior. He is our shepherd. Second implication. Be like God's King Jesus. Pursue righteousness in what you do and how you do it. We often have this conversation as a staff team about a Wednesday as uh, we're dismantling each other's sermons to put them back together again. 
with all the complexity of the times we are living in, and we get our heads around a new set of coronavirus regulations, the very best thing we can do Sunday by Sunday is to teach God's Word. The very best thing you can do in your small groups is to teach God's Word, because that tells us how to be like the King. That's what unites us as a church. Pursue righteousness. Do what the king says in his word and do it in the way he says you are to do it. Humbly, with servant hearts, graciously, sensitively. Do not be more severe than Jesus. Where he shows mercy and forgiveness, so should we. Someone who has wronged us, criticized us, given us a tough time, is converted. We, like the king, need to wipe out the wrongs and the past. It is not for us to judge others, but nor is it up to us to question Jesus' judgment of others. Number three implication, those who oppose Jesus' kingdom will not succeed. All through the Bible, there are examples of people who oppose Jesus' kingdom, whether it's the Ishbosheths, whether it's the Abners, and Abner came to faith, whether it's the mighty empires like Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, or Rome, or in our Western world, secular humanism, so on and so forth. It looks like, it feels like, Ish-bosheth is the king that you should follow if you want to get on. But they will never succeed, for they are up against, quietly in the background, Jesus. Number four implication. There are only 15 implications. Five, sorry, Miss Print. Number four implication. And this is so important. Never ever compromise righteousness in seeking to advance God's kingdom, particularly to leaders in the church, perhaps. It's very timely, very important. Never compromise righteousness. Doing what is right in accordance with Jesus' word is always right. Doing it in the way that accords with the manner commended in Jesus' word is always right. Never compromise righteousness. Never justify the means for the end. Do not persuade yourself that the end ever justifies the means if the means are not righteous. Do not take matters into your own hand thinking you know best, thinking you know better than the king. Do not go behind the king's back. Be sure that you love righteousness more than success. Be sure that you love righteousness more than your reputation. There are times in the Christian life that a leader's reputation is lost unjustly, for they are unfairly criticized. They might need to correct wrongs, 
but the right response is to pursue righteousness. Be very careful not to presume that your ways are always right. The person in this narrative who unnerves me the most is Joab, for he loved the king with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he sought power and influence, reputation. He used people. He would not listen to others. He would not listen to his king. A Christian leader who focuses too much on vision and strategy and not enough on their sermons or prayer. A church, Christians who engage in the politics, parochialism, rivalry, and ambition that tragically so often characterize the church. Much to take to heart. That doesn't mean to say we just give up and let Jesus do everything. But we do what he has told us to do, to teach his word. Let the king speak every Sunday. Let the king speak every small group. Speak to the king on a Tuesday night at the prayer meeting. Love God's people. Love God's people when they come to faith. Do not take matters into your own hands. Do not do anything unrighteous to advance the kingdom of God. Number five implication, and with this we finish, Jesus, not us, in the end, builds his kingdom. What a comfort that is. When we look out at the world and its opposition to Jesus and his kingdom, we know We know always in our minds, but when we see something like 2 Samuel, we're convinced again that Jesus is quietly building his kingdom. Nothing will oppose him in the end. Or when we look at the compromise and mess and politics and the church, we know that Jesus is building his kingdom through it all. When we look at the divisions and difficulties, the rivalries and ambitions, the failures, the flaws, the disunity among gospel churches and people, we do well to remember that Jesus is building his kingdom. Now, what's the big application of these narratives? Perhaps have a little lower view of what you, me, can achieve in the kingdom and have a higher view of what Christ is doing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this narrative and its richness, its fullness. There is a great deal for us to get our heads around. And we pray that in some ways we will have done that. And that we will trust that Jesus is building his kingdom. We will not see and be discouraged that opposition will in the end prevail against it. And we will not take matters into our own hands and confuse our own success and advancement for kingdom advancement. Help us to be humble citizens, obedient to the King and his word. And help us, Lord, as we prayed earlier, through these narratives to understand a little bit more of what it means to say, 
Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may that be true for this church, Chalmers. May it be a church where the kingdom of God has come and the will of God is done here as it is in heaven. Now in part, not yet in full, but help us to strive to be more and more like the people you have called us to be, leaning, depending on Jesus, our King and our Lord, for his sake. Amen.